I think if you examine the rules, uh, I think there is an obligation uh, of civility, not just with lawyers, but with the uh, the other side, whoever that may be, and however they may be represented. But I don't think the problem in that sense is with the rules. I think it's with people's understanding that the obligations exist. Hello and welcome once again to Jumping Off the Ivory Tower with Prof. Julie Mack. My name is Dana Cornwall and I'm the project manager at the National Self-Represented Litigants Project. And I'm Julie McFarlane, the director of the National Self-Represented Litigants Project. And for our episode this week, we have another impressive guest, Malcolm Mercer, who is the treasurer of the Ontario Law Society. And as Julie points out, that basically makes him like the prime minister of the (laughs) Law Society because he is elected by the benchers and is basically the leader of the Law Society. And he has held that position since the summer of 2018. So not very long so far, but already, I think, doing some interesting things. Yes, indeed. And Malcolm is somebody who has been extremely outspoken and influential in the legal profession for a number of years. He's actually, his day job is as a corporate lawyer with McCarthy's, which is a big Bay Street law firm. But he has always been a commentator on the legal profession and on the justice system. For example, he has a regular blog on slaughter He's also an adjudicator with the Federal Immigration Review Board. He's a former director of Pro Bono Ontario. So he's a, he's a man of many parts. And mm-hmm. Malcolm, I am very proud to say, has been supportive of the NSRLP's efforts right from the very beginning, and I count him as a colleague. He is also sitting, I think it's fair to say, in a very hot seat Mm -hmm. with very high expectations from access to justice advocates. And at the same time, he has to balance keeping his party, the Law Society members, on site. And I think our conversation reflects that difficult balance. Uh, Sometimes Malcolm doesn't take my bait, although I do try to persuade (laughs) him to. And I think it's a really interesting indication of some of the challenges that lie ahead for the Law Society and for Malcolm and the benches and for all of the members if really significant steps forward are going to be taken here to respond to access to justice challenges in Ontario. Couple of background explanations for a few legal terms that come up in our discussion. First of all, summary judgments we talk about. These are procedures that ask the court to throw out a case at an early stage. Basically, this is a kind of early curtailing of a case. It's been generally historically used for cases that don't have merit, but we are seeing them very widely used as a strategy by lawyers against self-reps. And this is something that at the project we've been monitoring and concerned about for some time. Another expression that comes up in our conversation, might be familiar to many of our listeners, is vexatiousness. Oh, boy. Oh, who would want to be (laughs) vexatious? Uh, This is an expression that is used both formally and informally by judges to negatively, obviously, label a self-represented litigant because of some aspect of their behavior. And what we have seen in our research, and we have a report coming out shortly on vexatious litigants, is this is a very variable uh, criterion. And we also know that once so labeled, even informally, that self-reps tend to suffer poor outcomes and often higher cost penalties. So those are just two expressions that you'll hear in the interview, but I think most of the rest of what we talk about and the back and forth between us is pretty self-explanatory. So let's listen. 
Morning, Malcolm. It's Julie. How are you? I'm well. How are you? I'm good, thank you. I appreciate you doing this very much, and I'm excited to have this conversation. You're a very important person for people to hear from, and I appreciate you taking the time to do it. And just by way of introduction, uh, I know I mentioned this to you the other day, and you said you had no recollection. I actually first met you at a County Law Society President's meeting in Toronto. I think it was in 2013, and it was just as the results of the study were coming out. And I wasn't getting a very warm reception with my, you know, news about the fact that there were a lot of people representing themselves because they couldn't afford lawyers and having a miserable time. And I remembered uh, very clearly you standing up and saying, don't shoot the messenger. So let me jump in here. We both know that the huge influx of self-represented litigants into the courts in the last 10 years or so has challenged centuries of traditions and conventions in the legal system. And for judges and court staff, and of course, for lawyers, this is a huge change because no longer can a lawyer assume they're going to face a lawyer on the other side of the case. Instead, often, The opposing side will be a member of the general public trying to navigate without expert assistance. As the treasurer of the Law Society of Ontario at, you know, dare I say, a fairly momentous point (laughs) in the history of the justice system, you are charged with representing members who have to figure this one out on a daily basis. So my first question is, what do you think lawyers find the most difficult about adjusting their practice to work across from self-represented litigants? What I believe is difficult is that lawyers, if they come through law school, as they go to articles or the the LPP, as they deal with their training on legal ethics and professionalism, they are raised and trained and mentored in a context of an adversarial system. And, And fundamentally, they rightly are trying to do the very best job they can possibly do for their client. Our justice system is designed to achieve two things in principle. One is to determine the correct or the just result. And the other is to do so in a process uh, where the participants can feel that they've had a fair shake, even if they don't agree with the result. And sometimes the results will be wrong. Mm. Our adversarial system is premised on the competition of ideas, if you will. It's yes. it's almost based in our concept of, uh, of free speech, that if we allow both sides to vigorously present their perspective, then a neutral adjudicator will be able to choose between them. Mm. And this, of course, assumes a level playing field. That's the first problem that we now face. Well, I think that's right. In theory, it does. Uh, Life is never perfect. Obviously, that's an understatement. But we design systems for the real world, but we design them on a principled basis. The alternative is the inquisitional system, which is the civil law system, where the judge is more of an investigator than a neutral adjudicator. Our system is premised on the adversarial process and the facts and the law being given to the judge and arguments made. And that works, as you say, really well, where you've got uh, both sides with reasonably comparable skills and resources. But less well when you don't. I'm sure you must, you know, talk to people even just informally about this. What is it they're telling you they're finding challenging about, in that adversarial context, extending those, you know, basic norms of communication? Because I know this is something that, 
throws a lot of lawyers for a loop when they have to communicate with a self-rep instead of with a lawyer on the other side. Well, I think the practical problems from the lawyer or the paralegal side are that the their job in in resolutely representing their client, which is our mm-hmm. language, mm-hmm. Yeah. is not to have duties to the other side. Right. Our duties are to our clients and to the administration of justice, but not right. to the other side. Right. And so the practical problems are the other side where it's self-represented, where they're self-represented, may not understand the law, may not understand what mm-hmm. Is, mm-hmm. is legally important. And the lawyer or the paralegal then is in the position where they're they're having to argue one side of the case with the other side of the case not necessarily being coherent in a legal sense. Yes, but what about a situation where, because of course we hear these stories all the time from self-represented litigants, you know, a self-represented litigant, we're going to say, you know, uh, an intelligent, reasonable person understands that the lawyer for the other side is not working for them, is not asking them for help as such, but feels that they are being communicated with, you know, in a way that might be normative for you and I and other lawyers, but for them feels very brusque, very curt, very unfriendly. And, you know, part of the problem here, I think, is that I mean, people are being made to feel that they're a nuisance. People are being made to feel that they're not being treated with equal respect. And I mean, what would you say to somebody who told you that, a self-rep? I guess I would say that some of that is because you are dealing with someone who is an adversary. Mm-hmm. Some of mm-hmm. that is because you're dealing with someone who is used to dealing with professional, a professional representative on the other side. But much of the communication doesn't need to explain why things are happening because when you have professionals mm-hmm. on both sides they understand say, they speak, yeah yeah they speak the same language mm-hmm. and so that's when the system is working reasonably properly then you get to the the circumstance where things aren't working as they ought to or as one might hope they would and you can have a lawyer who's frustrated uh, in dealing with a self-represented litigate it may just be frustration on the lawyer's part or it may be that they see their job as as taking any advantage that uh, uh, they can to advance their client's interests and and their issues about what advantages can properly be taken Mm -hmm. and which ones can't. Finally, some people are just not reasonable even with lawyers and perhaps even worse with uh, self-represented litigants. Do you think, Malcolm, that there is anything the society could do, or you indeed in your position of leadership, to send a signal that might make any difference to the way that lawyers treat self-represented litigants or the other side where they're unrepresented with respect? Because I think one of the things that's exacerbating what is becoming, you know, I see a growing dissatisfaction amongst many members of the public is they're aware that the lawyer on the other side owes their duty to their client and to the court. And there isn't anything that currently says, and you also owe a responsibility to treat the other side with respect. I mean, it's the code is all about relationships between and among lawyers. And of course, so many of these relationships now are with people who aren't lawyers. Well, one of the things which comes to mind when you ask that is that we've had a decade and a half long conversation about civility yes. in the profession, even as between professionals. 
Yes. And that's been controversial, as you know. I do, there's yeah. Been, there's been substantial work by the uh, professional associations and by the law society to improve civility as between the protagonists or their representatives, and some have argued that's gone too far. I think if you examine the rules, uh, I think there is an obligation uh, of civility, not just with lawyers, but with the uh, the other side, whoever that may be, and however they may be represented. But I don't think the problem in that sense is with the rules. I think it's with people's understanding that the obligations exist uh, as they do uh, in the SRL context as well as in the represented context. Right. You talked about, and I think it's right, that uh, it may be worth looking at the commentary uh, as a way of reinforcing yes. that thought. Yes. Uh, it may be worthwhile, the law society, communicating in different ways, uh, informally as opposed to in the rules. Mm -hmm, uh, and mm -hmm. it may be worthwhile having the, the professional regulation division, which is the investigative and enforcement side of the law society, uh, heighten its awareness and understanding of these issues. It's not something that is going to come naturally to many lawyers. And I still talk to lawyers all the time who I would say are not necessarily behaving intentionally badly towards self-reps. They just don't know how to deal with them. And I think guidance that says clearly, even if the other side is not a lawyer, you still have duty of, of, of civility, I think would be really, really helpful. But let me, let me move our discussion on to, you know, maybe a slightly more uncomfortable place. We have started to see, and we have seen this played out in some of our research reports and the data from the court, we started to see strategies developing amongst lawyers where they're facing a self-rep on the other side. Now, I mean, you can bring that back to the adversarial duty and say they're trying to get the very best for their client. I get you on that. But these strategies include things like bringing motions for summary judgment, which have shot up absolutely exponentially in the last 10 years, and the success rate that always being brought by, by lawyers against self-reps is in the high 90s, which is pretty astonishing. We're also seeing it in relation increasingly in the jurisprudence we're tracking around vexatiousness that I think that some lawyers feel that they're kind of pushing on an open door if they go to a judge and complain about an SRL being vexatious. The definition of vexatious is currently literally a movable feast that changes from day to day in our courts. I mean, we obviously need a little bit more clarity and consistency there, but, but the ambiguities are being exploited, Malcolm, by people who are basically just trying to get rid of the other side. And similarly, I think using summary judgment motions. This is talking about something a little bit more than poor communication or brusque or, you know, disrespectful communication. This is actually strategizing to use tools, which yes, are obviously op you know, available to counsel, but using them in a way that exploits some of the stereotypes around self-represented litigants and basically knocks them out. What do you think about that? It's hard to think clearly about it uh, from my perspective. The summary judgment tool has been seen by the Supreme Court of Canada and by the courts more generally as a means of simplifying issues. Yep, and efficiency, uh, yeah. Yeah, but, but also access to, uh, to justice because the idea of people being able to get to trials uh, and the cost of getting there is seen as being so significant that summary judgment has been seen by the system as a way of getting simplified, streamlined, 
access to a result. Right. But I would say, again, 500% increase and a 95% success rate. I mean, those figures are concerning, aren't they? What you say makes sense. The, the reason that it's hard to, to be clear about is that you don't want participants to avoid efficient ways of dealing with cases that ought to be dealt with. Dividing the world into those cases, those summary judgment motions which are proper, and those which are merely taking advantage is a really hard thing to do in practice. So there are two participants in this that matter uh, beyond the, the litigant themselves. One is the judge, and I think it's important that judges understand in dealing with SRLs that uh, they have to examine carefully uh, in a summary judgment case whether or not they're closing the door uh, mm -hmm. to promoting a case or prosecuting a case as opposed to coming to an early conclusion. Mm -hmm. And I agree that lawyers should understand that they shouldn't be shutting down through use of their resources the ability of somebody to put forward a case. But it's hard because summary judgments are good things in principle. And the law is that both sides ought to put up their best case so there can be an early fair adjudication. And the problem is the SRO isn't able to do that, I expect. Well, they usually don't realize what the summary judgment motion even is. But but I think, you know, the deeper point here is that you're right. These are all important tools, as is, of course, dealing with actual vexatiousness in order to not clog up the courts and, and make it more difficult for everybody to access. The difficulty becomes when there are very deep-rooted stereotypes that assign those kinds of assumptions to all SROs. I mean, I agree with you it's difficult to separate a good reason for a summary judgment from a bad reason, but it's not impossible. And we're smart people, and we ought to be able to think about that as a problem. I would separate two thoughts in what you just said. I agree with what you said. When you're talking about vexatious litigants, I think you're right to reinforce the idea that stereotyping is wrong and that the way one presents isn't an indicia of being vexatious. It's what you have to say, and we shouldn't allow stereotyping to result in a finding of vexatiousness. On the other hand, summary judgment isn't about bad people or bad litigants or bad anything. It's about answering the question, do we know enough now to make a decision? And that's not about good or bad. No, but I would argue that in, in practice, as you've read enough of these cases, which unfortunately I have now, it's very difficult to separate the person from the process. But, you know, we can agree to disagree on that because I want to move on to, to a final question. And I appreciate all of these, uh, these responses, Malcolm, and I want to get a response to this. You know, one of the things that I've been wondering about is would it be appropriate to instead of trying to fit the SRLs into the existing system, which is effectively what we're talking about, into professional rules, into summary judgment procedures, etc., what about trying to come up with an innovation? So, for example, one of the things we hear about a lot from SRLs when they are unhappy with the behavior of the other side, but the problem is that that is an issue at the time that the proceedings are going on, and of course they can't make a complaint until after the proceedings are concluded. So I'm wondering, you know, is there some kind of a case here for a self-represented litigant ombuds or some kind of a other kind of help or assistance line where people could actually voice their concerns? Perhaps it would be then explained to them, well, this is the lawyer's duty to behave like that or not, but they could at least feel that there was somebody listening. So I think there's something to that. What I would say, though, is I am inclined from a policy point of view uh, not to go first to what 
a new tool ought to be, but rather from a law society perspective, spend time thinking about what the problem is mm-hmm. and what all, all of the tools are. I think mm-hmm. there's a tendency in life to leap to, to the next bright, shiny idea. Mm-hmm. So Fair that's, enough. That's one yep. thought. The, sec- the second thought is an ombudsperson is an interesting idea, but it risks uh, competitively or in an overlapping way doing what judges are supposed to do, which is to deal with the process in front of them, deal with what law societies are supposed to do, which is regulate lawyer and paralegal conduct. If you're talking about an ombudsperson, I think there's a risk of overlap of responsibilities. If you're talking about an mm-hmm. advocate or you're talking about an advisor, that mm-hmm. to me has has uh, is easier to get my head around right. In, a, right. in a good way. So I think it's an advisor or an advocate that you're looking for as you describe it. Well, I think just a, a resource. Um, I mean, I think part of the problem here, and you know, and this really is my last question because I did want to ask you a little bit about the Law Society's advertising campaign because you've had a lot of flack about this. Our society is your society. You know, there is, and I think you understand this very well, a real need to build public confidence again in the system and in lawyers in particular. And I think that having some kind of a resource who could advise SRLs who are concerned that they're being taken advantage of, and they may or may not be objectively being taken advantage of, but they sure as heck feel like they're being taken advantage of. And to have somebody who actually is there as a resource for the public, I think would be both a practical step, and it would also send a very strong message around building public confidence. The purpose of the public awareness campaign is partly to deal with the fact that we know that most people who face legal issues in their lives don't know where to go and don't know what to right. do about it. Right. And, and while you know, your, your point is obviously right that there are many people for good reasons don't use lawyers or paralegals, we do want people to be able to find good lawyers and paralegals. Mm-hmm. And so mm-hmm. creating a, an awareness of where information can be obtained for that right. is valuable. And right. secondly, the Law Society is a public interest regulator. Mm-hmm. It's not uh, an advocate or a champion of lawyers and paralegals. And we want people to know where they can come to if they have a problem. That's different than saying we do it right perfectly. And I very much appreciate your candor and your willingness to talk about this. Um, and I hope we can continue to work with you on this issue. And thank you for your time this morning. Of course. Thank you. Well, that was an interesting conversation. It was a very interesting conversation, and there's there's a lot there. You both said a lot, and I think we've got a few things to kind of unpack a little bit. And the first thing is what you talked about pretty much right off the top, and as Malcolm put it, he sees a need for research work on what lawyers struggle with mm-hmm. when facing SRLs. Right. I think he makes a fair point Mm -hmm. that we can always, I mean, as a researcher, I'm always in favor of more empirical research. And I think that a piece of research that maybe could be done now, but really hasn't been possible until now is research that really does put that question to lawyers. What is the hardest thing about dealing with an SRL? But I think it's not quite accurate to say that we don't have research on the interactions 
between SROs and lawyers. We have an enormous amount of that data at the project. And yes, uh, a lot of that comes from SROs themselves. So people might say that, you know, we need to get the lawyer's perspective on this. We also have data from lawyers. We also hear mm -hmm. from lawyers themselves who are in touch with us when they feel that they have seen very poor practice by fellow members of the profession. So I don't think it's quite true to say that we don't have data. And we also have case law. I mean, mm -hmm. case law, in some ways, tells you what you need to know about what lawyers say about working with SRLs, because mm -hmm. it's written down right there, either in the judgments themselves in reference to what has been argued or in the transcripts. Uh, and then uh, another thing that I found really interesting in what he was saying, and uh, kind of as a... Um as a layperson, I know we don't like to use the term non-lawyer around here, so I am not a non-lawyer. <laughs> yes. Um, but I am not a lawyer. So mm. as someone who is not a lawyer, um, I found it interesting, the discussion about an adversarial versus an inquisitorial system. Mm. And of course, our system, as you know, many of the systems in democracies around the world, is based on an adversarial premise right. that, you know, each side kind of argues their case and then an impartial person you know kind of based on those chooses. cases chooses between right. them what Malcolm called I thought very effectively the competition of ideas yes that was a mm. great turn of phrase I really liked that as well but of course as you kind of talk about in the conversation and as we see on a daily basis the problem is that an adversarial system is premised on the idea that there is a level playing field between both sides. Exactly. And of course, we know that in many cases, particularly those involving self-represented litigants, that is not the case. It is not truly a level playing right. field. And therefore, that's kind of where the theory and the lovely idea of the adversarial system that we've got kind of breaks down. Starts to break down. Yeah. And, you know, and people would say, and quite correctly, that it's not a level playing field when it's all lawyer representation either because some lawyers are more effective in mm -hmm. their representation. Some of them, um, you know, some of their clients can afford to pay them for more hours and they're better prepared. Yeah. Some are more experienced than others. But you really do see the inequities when you've got a lawyer on one side and a self-rep on the other. And I think that everybody recognises that that is one of the most challenging things of all. And, you know, I thought that it was so interesting how in that conversation with Malcolm, we were trying to kind of tease out where the line gets drawn mm -hmm. between taking any advantage that you can on behalf of your client and taking unfair advantage. Mm -hmm. And, you know, as he rightly says, that's a very difficult line to draw. Mm -hmm. But I do feel that it's a line that increasingly we have to pay attention to and try to draw it because there is so much damage being done as you and I know, because we hear these stories all the time, to the reputation of the, of the profession in the eyes of the public. There may be different ideas and different approaches, but we have to start having that conversation. It's, it's long overdue. And then finally, and it kind of, again, related to that, is your kind of final conversation about the idea of an SRL ombuds, mm -hmm. uh, or an ombudsperson. And I think, you know, and we've talked about this at the project before, this ITM, yeah. you know, that 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 could be a very practical step to kind of um, help access to justice for SRLs. And I think the idea is that at the uh, on one level, it would just be kind of a symbol of a little bit of more equality, I guess, or not so much equality as just somebody to listen. To. And, and also recognition that maybe you need some new roles and some new processes yes. for SRLs. Yes, that, you know, we are trying to kind of... Uh, 
I guess, fit SRLs into the system that has been so long established. And I think that an ombuds would would be one of those potential ways. Yeah, I think, you know, depending upon obviously what the scope of their, their role would be, just saying we're going to appoint an SRL ombuds for, let's say, a pilot period of two years and see how it goes, mm -hmm. I think that would really help people to feel that the societies were trying to do something that recognized this unique challenge. In Other News. Welcome back to another segment of In Other News, where we share some updates from the world of access to justice. First up, we're looking at the World Justice Project's Rule of Law Index. The 2019 Rule of Law Index, which was released in February of this year, provides a comprehensive look at the state of the rule of law in 126 countries around the world. Recently, the Canadian Forum on Civil Justice published an article on Slaw Magazine about this index, examining general global trends, as well as looking specifically at the rule of law in Canada. For context, the index consists of eight factors that fit into the term rule of law. These include constraints on government powers, absence of corruption, open government, fundamental rights, regulatory enforcement, civil justice, criminal justice, and lastly, order and security. Overall, around the globe, more countries declined in their scores compared to countries that increased in their scores. Canada stayed the same rather than declining, and also remained at the same rank, ninth in the world. While there was no overall change in Canada's score, Canada is lagging behind other developed countries in the civil justice category in particular, where Canada is ranked 20th. The civil justice category includes elements like access and affordability, unreasonable delays, and effective enforcement. Issues with the civil justice system are something that we regularly hear about from self-represented litigants, and it's clear that Canada needs to do more to improve our legal justice system and the state of the rule of law in our country. To learn more about the methodology for the index and to find some more information, take a look at the article, which we've linked to on our website. Second, we're sad to announce that last Thursday, the Ontario government announced that Legal Aid Ontario will have its budget cut by $133 million, and that Legal Aid Ontario will also not be able to use provincial funds for refugee and immigration cases. This budget cut is about 30% of the entire funding provided to Legal Aid Ontario. The province is justifying this cut by stating that Legal Aid Ontario will somehow streamline their process and help more clients with less funding. Legal Aid is an important pillar of access to justice, and this budget cut, which is effective immediately, will likely result in devastating impacts for those vulnerable people who rely on legal aid. The legal aid is continuously reformed, but this drastic cut, especially in the context of our first news story about Canada's stagnant rule of law status, is shocking and seems like taking a step backward, or rather, 133 million steps backward. Our third story is an update about Professor Benny Tai, who joined us on this podcast approximately a year ago. Professor Tai is a professor of constitutional law, an activist, and a voice for universal suffrage in Hong Kong. 
Last week, he and other pro-democracy activists were found guilty of public nuisance as a result of their protest in 2014, where they called on China to have free elections in Hong Kong. The sentencing hearing has been scheduled for April 24th, and Professor Tai could be held in prison for up to seven years. This is saddening news, but we're hopeful and optimistic about the appeal process. That's it for this episode of Jumping Off the Ivory Tower. Join us next week for a conversation with three past and present students from the University of Windsor, where they discuss their unfortunate experiences of reporting sexual assault to the police. A final note, our news stories this week were a little disheartening, and I realize that it sometimes seems that bad things continuously happen in the world of access to justice, and that the mission of improving access to justice might seem like an impossible task. But, as we noted last week with some of the research in the Daedalus Journal issue on access to justice, there are people working tirelessly to find and implement solutions. We all need to continue to work, to not be complacent, to upset the status quo, and to do what we can to improve the legal system, step by step. Thank you for listening in, and let's keep at it. <laughs>